Thank you for downloading this documentary from RTE Radio 1. For more information, visit rte.ie forward slash doc on one. There was the main street. There was uh, McKear Road, which was the road in the county, not alone in the town. McKear Road was in the county. Everyone knew McKear Road. There was McKear Road. There was Spencer Street. There was Station Road. There was uh, Round the Mall. There was Ellison Street, uh, Linen Hall Street and Chapel Street. That was the actual town. Outside that, within a, a stone's throw, was nothing but green fields. But um, only for the money that was made in the bacon factory. Uh, the town would have been destitute. There was there was no other employment. We had a hat factory, but it was never had never the amount of employment that the bacon factory had. In its peak, it never had it. The bacon factory was the it was the lifeblood of Castlebar and the surrounding areas, for morning, Keylogs, Newport, out to Island Eighty, Glen Island, is within a radius of five eleven miles. It was the lifeblood of Castlebar. That's what. That's where the money was. That's where the shopkeepers made their money. There was, I'd say at some stage, between, between the, the sausage house, uh, the cannery, uh, the, uh, the, 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 what you call it, the hatchery. And at that time, the rabbits were gone as well. And the, Mr. King, there was a poultry farm there as well. In my day, looking back at it now as a child, there must have been the better part of six to 700 men and women worked in the baker factory. There was my father, there was my grandfather, there was my uncle, there was myself. My sister Mary worked in it. Andy, God rest him, he worked in it. My husband was a driver in it for 25 years. I mean, it, whole families depended on the bacon factory. Whole families. It, it sh- you know, it should never have closed. It's, uh, it grieves me today, to be honest with you, to think of what was lost. And it, it really was something. And I lived in McHale Road, which is, I suppose, the oldest... I lived in McHale Road for many years. It was the oldest uh, local authority estate of the town. And practically every house, as I said, my sister worked in it, my mother worked in it, and like, there were some great characters. And you'd see them coming out with their kind of the white turbans. Yeah. That's their turban is right. And their white coats. They see them streaming out of the bacon factory after work at five or six in the car. Well, it was really a sight to behold. It was like a crowd leaving Croke Park. Uh, the bacon factory originally started as a co-op in 1916, it just after the First World War. And they acquired a site, as Nan said, a farmyard of Lord Lucan's estate. All shareholders were all local people, local farmers, and through five bob, I think the shares was at the time. A lot of money, but... the. Indeed, my own grandfather, Lord Mercium, had shears when he died, but he never got a hit me after, but they were there. But it started up like that, and originally it was pigs, and of course, everybody at that time reared pigs, and you could throw them anything. A few years later, there was a strike in it, and closed it for 12 months, and they reopened it. Seemingly, some company bought the shareholders. Then you had the war came up, 
and they were only killing very few pigs and they started gradually after the war then going into sausages. When they first started them, there was only a couple of pounds made of them and gradually they built up and they built up a great sausage trade, one of the best in Ireland at the time. Then they went into beef and at the time there was a lot of this... Uh, TV beef and blue beef and all this going on. So they were killing cattle anyway for the TB thing. And there was up to 300 cattle a day being killed. The butchers slaughtering the cattle had to kill them, hoist them up in the air and skin them all. And very, very heavy work now. Very heavy work. The, the bacon factory provided work for country lads who could come in, do the winter in it, which was a busy time. Funny enough, it was always busy around winter. And they could, didn't mind going off then on their stamps. They had their own work to do in the spring. Now, the local lads, like I live right beside it, nearly every house in McCare Road, where I live, 116 houses, somebody or other was working. Indeed, there was whole families worked in it. Each would get a job in it gradually. And if they got in, then. Myself, I went into it first in 1955 on piecework, and cattle. One and threepence a quarter. One shilling and threepence a quarter. Five shillings for going out a whole cow. Those men used to cycle in from Newport, which is over 11 miles from here, to work in there in the morning and be there at six, seven o'clock. I started in the bacon factory in 1935. Twelve and sixpence a week. From eight in the morning till six at night, one on Sahara. Then, in that time, we were killing sheep. If you were killing sheep, you'd be in the morning. And you from six o'clock to eight, one on sixpence an hour. And... <clears throat> That went by for a while. Then the next thing we started on the the killing of the lambs. And the killing of the lambs would start in the morning and finish at eight because the beef had to, the bacon had to start then. It was the nineteen forties, this beef started. I was taken out of the the pig place and brought into it. My first time seeing beef and it's a big change to see beef. So the beef started killing, which we didn't know much about. Well, the killing was in a small little place and very awkward. It was very hard because everything had to be carried. There was no such thing as a forklift. And all the beef had to be, I think t- there was six to seven wagons of beef on a freighter. And all that beef had to be carried by hand and put into the wagons. Then it happened that the man that was sticking them got bad, and I got the knife. I got stick in their hands. <laughs> so I came into butchering at that time. But the beef is different. The beef, is, the beef was a big job to us and very awkward, which we weren't able for, for a long time. But we got used to it, and... We sent uh, the bacon factory sent beef to America. At one time, sending the beef to England, there was eight containers every Friday 
for two years. Eight containers going out, and that with no forklift, all carried on your back, on your hands. That's no, uh, my legs are bad. And the, we, then we killed the, bone the beef, they started bone then. When the beef started going to America, we had bone the beef and going to England. And there was, um, we had two tables, a table of six men on one side and six the far side. And they had, they had so much to do, each of them had so much to do on the bone. That means it be trimmed, ready for exporting. The most dangerous part of the bone and procedure was to do the neck because it's all like an S and you're going in and out. And remember, these are very sharp knives and you're doing it with this and you're trying to hold the, the meat with your other hand. Well, most people would eventually get one, get themselves in. There was people getting that many cuts. But the, then you went through that, you, once you had the neck, the ham end of the, the, the quarter was a different procedure. You also took out the leg again, cut off at that. Then you took out the pelvis bone without leaving meat on it, which is the secret. Then you cut off that section. That was another cut of beef. And then to go into the hip bone, as we'd call it, you, you had to get a, a seam. There was a seam in the, the meat, and you tried to get in on that seam to divide the core and take out eventually your hip bone. That was it. And you got one and three. Now, we used to get three pence, old pence, now you must remember what three were, to bone a sow's head. And it was the most awful job you ever done, but you had to do it. It wouldn't leave your knife because the sow's head was so... The skin alone would take the edge off your knife until you became good. And now it was very hard to keep a knife. There were certain men very skillful with knives. And if you knew, if you were in with them, they'd do your knife for you. But till you learned that. But that was one of the skills you eventually learned. You learned to this day I can steal a knife with the best of them. I, I wouldn't even be looking at it and I'd be running the knife off the steel. But it, that, that was three pence for doing that. And that's how we were paid. We were paid then on the blade bone. Every, come around the evening, the count how many blade bones we had or how many hip bones we had, and we got one and three for each one of them. But when we eventually became proficient, and it did wind up that we were making 70, 80 pounds, up to 100 pounds, some of them. And piecework. Of course, the management got wise. They said, well, these fellows can do it now. And good, we were good at it then. So they put us on day's wages. <laughs> and they reformed the way, instead of one man doing the whole lot, his own bit, they then had a man taking out the leg bone, the next man would take out the shoulder blade, the next man would take half the ribs, the next man would take the rest of the ribs, and another man would take the neck. And that was the line then. And it was the same then for the hindquarter. The one man would take out the hip bone and all. The, but they, they brought us back down in wages anyway. We went way down. But we got it in overtime then. It was awful severe in hands, and you had no gloves. 
old coat hanging, that's all you had in it. That's how it went on and on. But it was very hard work now. Very, very hard work. Some people were very good. The funny thing, a left-handed bowler was the best bowler. Now, I was telling you about the lad, John Laddie, that the French taught. They'd never seen anything like Well, he was a kid dog, as we called him, a left-hander. And he took out a bone there like a, a looking glass. It was a skill, a really good skill, actually. As I said, many of the workers then, later on, they went to England. They got big jobs in England. Many of them got to be top dogs in factories. Did I know them personally? And they got on great in it. But that's where they learned it. But when you were on piecework, it was different, I tell you. Probably the biggest time in it was in the mid-60s really took off then. The place was boom. They were killing three and four hundred cattle a day. Yeah. Maybe a thousand sheep yeah. that same day. Yeah. Maybe three or four hundred pigs yeah. that same day. So each place was booming. Booming. There was a bone meal section in it which was putrid now. Putrid. And the men that worked in it, they never knew it but if you were standing beside yeah. one of them after you yeah. knew it. Mm-hmm. The same I expect with us because we had meat on our hands all day long. All oh, right, there was a few taps. There wasn't that many taps. You wouldn't be really washing your hands that often. There was one out in the toilet, maybe. They eventually put in showers then. People could shower in the evening then in the cloakroom. But at the start of it, wasn't And that smell had to be there, you see. Do you remember, you'd get the smell of raw meat. Yeah. Oh, you couldn't, you couldn't stand within a, a foot or you two You knew feet. who worked in the bacon You'd know straight away. I mean, the smell of raw meat was... Uh, once they came near you, you could smell this raw meat. It was... I don't know what it was, but it was... When you look back on it now, to think of it now, it was terrible. Oh, yeah. But it never... We, we didn't take any heed of it. We didn't bother with it at all. But I do remember working in the turkeys. At that time, before... During the war years, and after the war years, there was an awful scarcity of turkeys in England. And uh, to take on additional staff women for plucking the turkeys in about six weeks before Christmas. And my mother was in it. She was a great turkey plucker, along with Hannah Myler, Hannah Cunningham. The only thing about it, she said she'd be yet with turkey lice. Yeah. And you'd be shrouded in feathers. Yeah. You'd be shrouded in feathers. Yeah. But she said they'd go all over your body and they'd eat oh. you. They were, like, they were like a swarm of locusts at the time. But again, it was fourpence for each turkey. And sometimes they'd inadvertently... Break the skin of the turkey, and they'd have a needle and thread there, and they sew it up to get good job. You wouldn't notice it was there at all. What you'd be scratching for a week, you know, in the cold nights. It was in a galvanized shed. Remember, down at the very bottom. Yeah, and they just hang them by the, you know, hang them up on a on a on a hook, and just pull the neck, and they were thrown down to you then, and that was it. And if you got one of the big turkeys, like we were only kids at the time. The Lord to mercy on my brother Andy now and Mary. We, the three of us used to pluck the turkeys and we used to make five shillings a week, which was an, an awful lot of money. But the only thing was that, uh, it, as I said, in the winter evenings you were up to your, to your thighs and feathers. You were lovely and warm until you came out and the boys attacked. <laughs> that was a different... But the other thing that Johnny mentioned there, I was just thinking that... In this day and age, they're talking about garbage collection and all this sort of thing. At the outside our door, as John Joe Burney and, and Johnny can verify, was the Goodfield. Now, the Goodfield, the entire offal 
of the of the bacon factory was put in in this field right on the main road. Now you could get the stench of this north, south, east, and west. I'd say for five miles, and if the wind had blown in your direction, I mean it was unbelievable. We used to go down, and we, do you know the bladders that used to be in the pigs? We used to put a straw on them, and we used to blow them up for balloons, and we'd have football matches. I mean, if you were to do that today, there'd be, you'd have half the garages in the country around the place. We, we worked in cold conditions, in warm conditions, in, in all honesty, extremely unhygienic conditions. There was no, there was no, uh, what was, there was no flush toilets. There was no water. There was no running water in any house. I think Bacale Road was the first one. Floor. Every single department, bar the, the floor and shed. All yeah, and I all mean, the time the floors were yeah. wet. Then around up on the ceiling, the be frozen pipes. Yeah, and, and they were dripping, constantly dripping because dripping, dripping, every dripping time a door would open, yeah. somebody going around, yeah. there was a certain amount of other air, and that keep dropping down. Yeah. And you'd be there and you'd be sweating mad. Yeah. Work it hard, and yeah. this be coming down on you. That's uh, was one of the disadvantages yeah. of it. But you didn't take a bit of notice. Yeah. You just got on because, as Nan said, there was no compensation. Yeah. If you were out sick, if you cut your hand, you were out. You that were was out. it. Get no pay. Got no sick pay. No pay. Later they changed that. Yeah. The union got pay for sick pay. So many weeks yeah. sick pay. We used to carry a quart of beef, the the beef that was going out on bone. We'd have to climb about four, four, six wooden steps up to get into the back of a lorry. That's true. Which ran our shoulders. And the load. And I'm only a small man. Yeah. I, I'd still have to do my share of it. And I mean, you had to do that. Everything was. Uh, when they killed the cattle, as I said, they used to hand winch them up. They used to, yeah. Well, just imagine trying to pull up a cow. <laughs> And then you had to skin it as you were pulling it up. Pull up so far and the skin so much. Yeah. Pull up another bit and skin another bit. Of course, it was awful hard work. There's no doubt the work was severe. And a lot of us now, older people that was in it, have either rheumatics or arthritis. Everyone you see John Joe there, yeah. the state of his knee now. You know, the cold and the wet, the conditions you worked in was severe now. Working in rain, six inches of water under your feet, and these pipes dripping down on top of you. You see, they, they wouldn't do it nowadays. They wouldn't do that. To, but everybody was glad to get it. The first thing, kids would leave school. Many of them left school straight into it. Never knew another job after that. There was a certain lady, and she was a neighbour, Nan's here, and John Jones. She was Mrs. Darker, was her name. She was fifth. Years in the bacon factory from our 13, she was about 13. I told yeah. she told me one day, not one day did she ever be out sick. No, yeah. wasn't a fan. There was another man, we call him Larger again, and he's dead oh, now, too. Yeah, Lord, yeah. another man, he went in at 12 and he was there till he was 65 yeah. and didn't last too long after. Unfortunately, a lot of the people who, who retired out with. They wouldn't live too long after. That was something that we often take note of, you know. When you're thinking, oh, sure, so-and-so didn't last only a little while after he left yeah. the job. I'd say it was an in, a thing in your mind. Uh, you were used to being up in the morning, going out to work. You'd had this crack. 
you missed it, you see. When you weren't there, you missed it. I wonder was so-and-so up to such a thing. Did they do this to that for us? It was a way of life. and It was the whole mind of people was focused on it. If you, there were certain pubs, there was an old joke at one time, there was pubs, oh, you better not win there, the, the peak hill is still on. <laughs> to be inside and have, have their few pints and they still be killing pigs. <laughs> you didn't do this or you didn't do that. <laughs> but that was the way of life. But, uh, you see, it won't come back. Uh, you must remember... During the war, nobody had anything. And uh, rationing and all this. And the bacon factory was a great thing in the sense, as Nan said, you wouldn't get the best cuts in the bacon factory shop. They'd have the steel and the knife caught with wire or string on the... Uh, yeah, and the bar of the bicycle. That's how that's how they, they lived. One question. <coughs> you used to have a shower, a shower in the tank. Yeah, there was a big tank. There was the big tank up at the top. Oh, yeah. Myself and Andy and Mary. Yeah, there was a tank up at the top where they used to hold the water for making the ice. They used to make big blocks of ice now, half the size of this table. And they used to have gauze bags. The gauze bags had covered the half side of, uh, of bacon. And we used to get into these. We thought they were swimming dogs. I'm sure they were, they were see-through. And we used to be above. And there was a scum, the colour of that green table there on the top of it. We'd be crawling on our knees. That was our swimming hole, wasn't it? That's when he used to come up the ladder. I was terrified of him. I really was terrified of John Joe Walsh. John used to come up and he'd let her work, get it out of there. And Andy be the first. We used to have a lookout and Andy would spot him first. John Joe was coming. Oh, God. But we've known John Joe. We've known John Joe. I've known John Joe since I started to walk. It's as simple as that. And that's not today nor yesterday, John. That's not today nor yesterday. And, of course, he's Johnny's sister's. And his mother, God rest her, and your mother and father. Everybody knew everybody else. It's, it was, it's, I don't know, it was fabulous. It was all his people of great vision and imagination and a certain amount of inventiveness in the baking factory. And Nan and Bernie and John Joe will recall the warriors when there was petrol rationing. They actually built their own gas producing stations and there was a big cylindrical business attached to the side of the lorries, which yeah. drove the lorries, which propelled the lorries yeah, when, there was no, when there was no yeah. petrol available. Daddy used to make the charcoal. 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 He used to burn the timber. Daddy yeah. had that job yeah. down in there. Yeah. And we, Andy and I used to sit. Now, the rats around the bacon factory, they weren't in their hundreds. They were in their thousands. They talked to you, the rats. But I remember Daddy was in this at the pit. Do you remember as you go down by, uh, uh, what you call them, Bob Lindsay had pigs in the, at the side. And this, there was like a big pit. And Daddy got this job of the, the last World War of uh, the bacon factory used to go cut down the timber. They cut the timber. And uh, when they cut the timber, Daddy used to burn it until it was burned to ash. And it was brown, you know, the brown. And that's what, that's during the last war, that's what uh, brought, the, brought the, uh, the, the, the trucks to Dublin and brought them. They used to have gas producers, what they called, yeah. on the front of the Vegas. 
during the war. And they were like two big gas tanks now. But this uh, chair called the Johnny and Nana on it, they used to manufacture it below it, the bacon factory. But it was to keep their own trucks on it. Yeah, there was 15 miles an hour, 20, never 30. Never 30. Try to go to Galway with that and all the stuff. Your heart was broken. Oh, I, I, remember, oh, cool. I remember Daddy. Daddy was a, a driver. Daddy was renowned, like because there wasn't a, there wasn't a new call or corner in Ireland that Daddy didn't know. And I remember Daddy, the Lord to mercy. And that time, there was a run what they used to call the the, the short run was from Castlebar to Dublin, and the long run was from Dublin Castlebar to Dublin, from Dublin to Belfast, and back to Castlebar. And I remember Daddy coming home. You know, in, I mean, this was in snowdrifts, everything else. And I remember Daddy coming home on one occasion. And when Daddy came in the door, Mammy turned on the light and Daddy was stone blind. He started crying like a child. His eyes, his eyes were, they were just like, they were burned out of his head with the, the conditions on the road. There was no heat, no heat in the trucks, nothing like that. And the radiator, you had to bring a can of water. You had to bring a petrol can with you for the uh, for the petrol if you got stuck. That's the conditions there was in it. But nobody complained. Everybody was sneering rabbits at the time. There was very little food about. But people catch a few extra ones and they, up to the bacon factory with yeah. one and six, one and a kick yeah. for a, a rabbit. Yeah. And the meat would be exported. But it was just like a chicken. It was skinned. The skins were sent for rabbit skins. And the rest of it then would be packed frozen after England. Some of the people now on McCare Road, like um, great characters like Rats Welsh and, uh, and a few more of them, they used to kill the rabbits, to snare the rabbits. And uh, they used to bring in these rabbits and they'd be dead, but they were all skinned and they were hung in the smokehouse. There was a Mrs Johnson that was looking after that. And uh, they, were all, uh, they were all smoked there and the skins were exported. We used to have lovely warm feet going to school because we used to lick some of the, the skins when they were dried and we put them into our welly boots. And uh, we used to have lovely warm, lovely warm uh, feet going to school. But that again panned out as well. But it was going very well for a while. It was going extremely well for a while. Uh, but um, it, there was, it, was, it was a terrible blow to the town. It was really... And to this day, even I cannot understand why the bacon factory closed. Uh, to this day, it's a complete and absolute mystery. We all knew, like, that it was a political thing, but nobody really had the guts to say why why it closed when it moved the whole thing, lock, stock and barrel, moved up to Ruski. The manager sold it. Yeah. yeah. That was in the 80s. Yeah. Things weren't too good. Yeah. And um, there was a bit of a problem. Claire Morris was much the same. But a man, he was a, he ruled Ireland for a while. One man ruled Ireland for a while. But Castle Bear was down and out after the big factory for a long time. For seven years? Oh, it was. No mistake about it. Yeah. It was, the closure all was, was done by stealth. And when it happened, it was, it was like a death in the family, really, like, because... People had grown up with the bacon factory. The, the parents before them had worked in the bacon factory. Almost like cutting off your finger, the bacon factory was gone. Several hundred jobs were gone, and there was utter devastation in the town. I think the town, yes, has recovered, 
but it took it several years to recover. And the closure of the bake factory politically left a very sour taste in the, in the mouths of a lot of people in Kespar and the surrounding areas of Kespar. And we all felt annoyed at the time because we felt that it was a going concern, uh, it was making money, uh, there were good jobs, always well-paid jobs in the baking factory, and then all of a sudden the lifeline was cut off. It was like, as I said, a death in the family. I, I never remember the, the, the naked reality that the baking factory had closed. That was there for 60 years at the time, established by local people, and indeed the baking factory was a great source of work, a great source of money, a great source of employment. And there was, there was a great sense of friendship and camaraderie and togetherness in the baking factory. You know, and people worked very... They'd grown up, they'd grown up with the baking factory... And, of course, there were some wonderful characters. One fella, family job. It was a family job. And there was one fellow called Dan Kellen. He died recently, and <laughs> during the course of butchering, he got his finger cut, and he was brought, he was brought to the Casper County Hospital in Casper, and the doctor said to him, he said, what do you work at, Mr. Kellen? He said, and a bit like yourself. What's that? Killing a few and curing a few. <laughs> so, I mean, when the factory... And it, it took us a long time to recover from, 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 I can only call it the death of the baking factory. Like, and it was not alone. Like, it was the lifeline for Casbar town and for the countryside. I suppose ten or twelve mines around around the town, and all that was one one so, fell swoop. It was gone, and uh, it took a lo- it took a long time to recover. I I felt I felt at the time that sh- I still feel it should never have been closed. I mean, you'd done away with a lot of skilled people, and also people working in it had a great sense of dignity because they had a weekly pay pack. And I met a chap afterwards and he said, uh, you were made redundant, Brendan. Yes, he said, I was made redundant. Of course, he said, I missed the money, but I missed the comradeship, I missed the talk, I missed the crack, I missed the chatter. And that was all part, you know, I, I mean, especially of a Monday morning after the dances the previous night, uh, to be talking, did you do business, or the expression at the time, did you square, did you get a woman? And this particular lady was talking about her, my sister, saying that she had been in Westport, and she had been left home by a fellow who des- described himself as a, a trainee solicitor. Uh, this is the humorous side. And she said, Kathleen Casty said to her, well, I know about a trainee solicitor. He's the first trainee solicitor I ever saw selling fish in the octagon in Westport. But <laughs> <laughs> well, that's Kind of symptomatic of, of the camaraderie, uh, the friendliness, and the companionship that existed. It was all in good fun, like, you know. But it was the amount of other employment that was kept going. Uh, and other shops had to take on staff when the baking factory was, particularly at Christmas, there was plenty of employment because the people had their money. They went downtown. The and a lot of shops on the main street of Castle Bar yeah, closed. They're, they're all gone closed. after. They're gone. They're gone. The build, yeah, the older gone. traders they're had to eventually wound up yeah. going out of business yeah. because there was no more Castle King Bar. Group. All the pubs, there was pubs that time, there was 101 pubs in Castle Bar at one stage. Yeah. There's 40-something now. But they had their certain houses, these workers. Yeah. Before they went home in the evening, they'd go into a certain house here in town to have two or three pints up on their bike and cycling maybe six or seven miles out. Then they had to tackle their farm work. But they were as happy as the Lord, they had money in their pocket and they were independent of everybody. Then when you got into the baking factory, if the shopkeeper knew you were going into the factory again, well, they gave you credit till you yeah. got going again yeah. and you paid him off. Yeah. He was as happy as the Lord and everybody was happy. Yeah. So all these spin-offs that also 
cause with the breaking factory closing there was an awful doom in Castlebar. It it took many years till these uh, modern factories came in, and then, but the shift also happened in the employment scene with it. The baking factory was a major male employee where some of these new type manufacturing, it's mainly female. The the male content to the female is, the ratio is totally different to what it was. There was about five men to every woman in the baking factory at the time. You see, and it was mainly that. Once a man was working, he was keeping, he was keeping his family, who was keeping a shopkeeper, who was and that's as I said, our station. Now, ah, it was a wonderful place. It's a, it's a, it's it was a cry in shame that's that it because today it should be flourishing today, absolutely flourishing, and there's not a trace left of it, not a trace, because I do say today it's a it's a it's a multi million dollar complex today where it is, but I often thought <coughs> myself. The Lord mercy on the lads in the factory if they came back and knew that there was a pub below at the loading bank <laughs> to, to, to think they were in heaven. I mean, when I heard... Oh, hogs heaven. Hogs heaven. Mm-hmm. And when I heard, like, I said, sure, sure, a pub. And I went up myself to see. But there is absolute... The last trace of the bacon factory that went was the old engine room. And I used to watch this... Any time I go up, you could see it over the skyline, and I used to watch it. And automatically, I went up one day, and it was gone, completely disappeared. They were just after putting a new pig killing line in. So part of my duty as night watchman was to go around and check everything was off, and to lock, see every place was locked up. And during one day, uh, a man dropped dead in the bone meal section of the bacon factory, a worker in it, and Lord of mercy, a man called Bernie Mullins. So that was grand. I was on duty that night, and we were going around, and myself and a lad that's dead now too, that was over the engine room in the bacon factory at night, Paddy Sweeney, so we did this ro- ro- sort of a routine. We went into every section. He checked the machinery and I checked. Everything was off. But when, when I had everything locked up, I used to have to lock the main big double doors. They were huge now. We locked them with a chain and a, a thing. And I was sitting down the watchman's office, this clocking office really. Next minute I heard everything going. And I couldn't understand where it came from because both sides of the building was locked. Nobody could actually get into it. I went over, everyone, the whole pig line was gone. Like if there was men working and nobody in it. Now, there was something about it was very chilly in it. But anyway, to cut a long story short, off we knocked them all off and checked them out again. And we went off and... I wasn't gone ten minutes from it. Went up the start again. Now, I thought it was Paddy Sweeney playing pranks on me. But it wasn't. Because, it, no, the locks were still on the door. That night, I never went back into it because there was always rumours that Lord Lucan used to go along there. 
But there was another, then there's this, another ghost in it. And this I seen with my own two eyes. There was a loading bank down where they're talking about there's a pub in it now, actually. But there was a loading bank down there. Now, there was a famous manager in it, Johnny Raw. And during the war, he was called to do service in England. He joined the Air Force and he got killed. Now, the older men used to be always rising me about it, probably putting the wind up me. Oh, you'll meet Johnny Rawl now around 12 o'clock some night down there. He used to always go across. This seemingly was when he was alive and in the factory. He'd always go across to where really Nan lived, over there, from the one side to the other. But I'd seen this fellow in the distance, and I couldn't understand who was it and what was that. So I went down with I had a big torch. And I called Paddy Sweeney and went down. Paddy said to me, don't worry about it. You've seen Johnny Rawl. Uh, creeps. <laughs> I shivered all over, I can assure you. But anyway, later on again that night, I was coming up from the hatchery. I used to have to go down the hatchery to turn the eggs. So I was coming back up again. And this fellow darted across the road like that. And to this day, they tell me, some people still see him there. And then called Johnny Rawl. He was a great sprinter, yeah. great swimmer, great all-round athlete. And he loved the I love Casper. I don't know. He was English, I think, Bernie, was he? But yeah. As yeah. Bernie said, that's, he, that's how he yeah. went home to yeah. yeah. He became a tail gunner, I think, and it was yeah. shot to pieces, the poor fellow. I really seen the ghost. Yeah, his and, and the hair stood in the back of me. Now. No more than the night that Ned Mullins died, that I, oh, the, all the machinery went in that place. But it was always known that... That was Lord Lucan's run oh, yeah. over in this corner. Yeah. And you'd hear the chains. Nan was on about the chains. Yeah. Well, it wasn't the pigs, really, no, the, and no, the chains, but the no. chains would be always rattling. But they, they always maintained that if any part of the old factory was knocked, yeah, that you'd it. hear them. It was only if some part of it was knocked. There were changing the Yeah, if the there layout. were, say, a change in something. And that time, as I said, you'd, as I said, we, we as children would be going down the road to school in the morning. And the, the old people on McCare Road, I mean, they firmly and absolutely believed in it. And if we were bad at night, we were told, like, Lord Lucan will get you. But when we'd be going down to school in the morning, you'd hear Granny Rainsforth and Mrs Feeney, one talking to the other at the doors, and you'd hear them saying, did you hear the racket last night? I did, I did, Mrs Feeney. Ah, sure, look, they're knocking that place up there again. Sure, it's bound to be himself that's walking. But they, they firmly and absolutely believed it. We did. We did. My mother swore that she'd seen him as well. He was a man that was over six feet tall, and she swore that she'd seen him. But, I mean, I came out after. I can all smart, smart Alec. But I could see nothing, but Mammy swore she'd seen him. <coughs> all that land where the big factory was built was owned by Lord Lucan. Well, and he also, lo- also owned what we call the lawn here in Casper, right, which is now the headquarters of his summer home. Mm-hmm. And myself and my next-door neighbour, Joe Scully, who's well-known to Bernie and Nan, I remember distinctly, and we were quite big lads at the time, we were 12 or 13, and we were up what we call the lawn, which is owned by Lord Lucan, is mm-hmm. adjacent to the yeah. what was the big, Casper Bake Company. And he met, we met this man, and he was very quaintly dressed. He, to me, I know, just got, he was like a character of upstairs, downstairs. Like, mm-hmm. you know, he wasn't of this age. Yeah. He maybe was of the 18th century. And he actually spoke to us, and he wanted to know where was the road to Turlough. 
Now, I said to my father, we go to him afterwards, and I was telling the story to him. And we were young, but we, thought, we knew he wasn't just as was of this world, or certainly not of this age. And I told my father, and he said maybe, my father would often call the local course the Assizes. And he said, Johnny, maybe he was a judge in Casper for the course or the Assizes. Like, you know, but I don't think he was. And, I mean, I'm glad that Joe Scully, because we have often spoken about this. And certainly the man that we thought, we were, we were convinced, although ghosts generally don't speak to you. But, and I thought, I thought, right in the middle of the run, in, in, in the brow of the hill, in the middle of the day, we thought this was very strange. And we were up there several times that we used to play games up there and have swings and be looking at the good-looking boarders because St. Joseph's was a boarding school at the time. <laughs> to this day, myself <coughs> and Jody Scully, my friend, great friend of mine, is, uh, we're convinced that it was some kind of a spirit or ghostly yeah. creature, you know? Yeah. Strange? Well, Lord, Lord Strange. It's definitely. It's, yeah. it's, uh, it's a known fact mm. among um, our generation. And, I mean, to be fair, there's something in it that has to be believed. It has to be believed, because even my grandfather, he he was the he used to open the bacon factory with a lantern, and uh, the, the, he had all the keys of every place, and he said on one occasion that he'd gone down the offices to know as you come in and his mm, office yeah. was there, and you go down then to where all the offices was John Toohey and all of them, and Granddad swore on several occasions that there was wet footprints on the ground, yet there was no wet outside. But Granddad had no fear of him yeah, at all. No, no. Absolutely. I mean, they took him for somebody that, 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 you know, they wouldn't mind meeting him. But in our age, in our age group, yeah. we firmly and absolutely believed that Lord Lucan still walks. Whether he walks the new place up there or not to this day, I don't know. But we firmly and absolutely believed that Lord Lucan still haunts the old bacon factory. a legend. They are truly a legend. I have some of the most unbelievable memories of the people that worked in that factory and they'll be with me till the day I die. They were fantastic unbelievable still believe to this day that Lord Lucan in some form or other walks that million dollar complex that's up there at Hogs Heaven. He oh he can have a pint of if he wants to the best to look to him. <laughs> if you've enjoyed this documentary you might like to try other RTE radio podcasts. Visit rte.ie forward slash radio forward slash podcast.